She wasn't just accused of being an adulterous woman. She was actually caught in the act itself by the Jewish ruling leaders of that day, the scribes and the Pharisees. They had set her up. They had tricked her. There was no room for argument. She was convicted, tried, and sentenced beyond reasonable doubt right there. There was absolutely no argument on whether or not she had committed this crime. But from the scribes and Pharisees' perspective, she wasn't just an accused lawbreaker. She just didn't break one of the laws of Moses. You see, from their perspective, this woman that you just saw was bait. They weren't out to get her as much as they were out to get Jesus. They wanted to see how this rogue rabbi would respond to these accusations that were being forced upon this woman. They couldn't, at that point in time, seem to make anything stick. But something had to be done with this man. Something had to be done with this rabbi whose following was growing literally bigger by the day. He was preaching a different message. He was teaching a different philosophy. It was one of love and of grace and of forgiveness. And he was teaching about a relationship with God, not rules and regulations. And the... the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Jewish leaders of that day had to do something. So they tricked this woman into becoming bait for Jesus. You see, Jesus would have known the, the laws of Moses inside and out. He probably had them memorized, every single one of them, hundreds and hundreds. And he would have known that there was no way that he could truly be a good rabbi if he had extended grace to this one who had committed this crime. He would be extending too much grace if he had declared her not guilty. But if Jesus, there on the spot, had in fact declared her guilty and asked for her execution to be taken place right there and then, he would have been violating Roman law because a Jew could not stone someone right there. The Romans had to do it. So they had him trapped. The Jewish leaders of that day, finally, it seemed like they had him trapped They finally were in a position to take Jesus down. And then John 8 describes Jesus bending over and in the sand writing something. We don't know exactly what he wrote. Scripture doesn't tell us exactly what it is that he wrote, but we can speculate. We can kind of determine what maybe he wrote. He might have written the name of the other in this situation. In fact, that would have embarrassed those Jewish leaders because in this scenario, they would have had to bring both parties to be judged. But they had let this man go free. They were in it simply to trick Jesus. That would have embarrassed them if he wrote the name of the other who was accused. Perhaps Jesus in the sand wrote their names. He wouldn't have any way to know all of them, and that would have absolutely shocked them. That may be true, but, you know, I kind of think based on what Jesus says next, that Jesus was actually writing the sins of those who were accusing the one who was accused. I think there in the sand that he might have started writing all of the sins of those who were coming, bringing this accusation against this one who had sinned and broken the law of Moses. Wow, that would have been shocking. But remember, he was all man, but he was all God. He knew exactly what those men were going through. He knew every high, he knew every low, and he knew every sin 
and he knew every transgression. And Jesus says in John 8, 7, they kept on questioning him. He straightened up and he said, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first one to cast a stone. They were prepared to stone her right there and then. And he says to him, let those who are without sin be the one to cast the first stone. And then Jesus knelt down and he began to write again. I'm sure they didn't want to see what was coming next. In fact, scripture tells us that from the oldest to the youngest, these ones who were bringing these accusations began to leave. They began to throw down their rocks and they left the area. Jesus picks the woman up from the ground and he forgives her. But I want you to catch this. He doesn't ignore her sin. He completely offers grace, but he doesn't ignore her sin. He says to this woman who's sinned, he says to this lawbreaker, you are forgiven, but go and what? Sin no more. Go and sin no more. I think that's exactly what Jesus wants us to do with our sin. It's exactly what he wants to do with our transgressions, those areas that we've failed him. He offers complete grace. He offers complete forgiveness. But he says to us, go and sin no more. You see, his purpose wasn't to die because he broke a Roman rule. His purpose wasn't to die because he broke the law of Moses. His purpose was, come, was to come to die a brutal death so that you and I could have eternal life because he took the sins of the world on the cross with him. Have you picked up on the one common denominator in this story? The common denominator in this story with the, the uh, scribes and the Pharisees and this one who's being accused is sin itself. In fact, I think we forget at the centerpiece of the Easter story is our sin. It's our transgression. And so Jesus describes himself in this passage that we're going to take a look at today. And he says, I am the gate. And he tells us that he is the gate by which we can experience complete forgiveness. Will you pray with me before we dive in this morning? Father God, thank you that you are the gate. God, thank you that you are the pathway to heaven, that God, you are the answer itself. We talked about last week how you didn't come to bring the answer. You didn't have the answer. You didn't come with a book necessarily. God, you came because you were the answer to our sin problem. And God, we all have it. Your word says that there is no one who is righteous. No, not even one. And God, we come today and I pray that you would help us to be honest with where we are with our sins and with you. And God, I pray that we would be honest with ourselves and with you about where we are spiritually. God, I pray for those who came in today and they are broken, they are hurting, they've been victimized. God, I pray that you would offer them assurance of salvation. God, that you would offer them forgiveness. And God, that you would bring them peace, just like you promised to bring in our lives. God, wherever people are today who walked in this room, God, whether they're from near or far from here, God, I pray that you would just seek inside and out, pierce our hearts and change us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would lead us into wisdom and truth this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. My name's Todd. I'm the pastor here. I'm glad that you've chosen to worship with us here on this Palm Sunday, this day that we celebrate with remembrance, as Cynthia mentioned just a few minutes ago, the fact that Jesus entered Jerusalem 
in what would be the last week of his life. And he entered on Palm Sunday, and we'll talk about that a little bit and the meaning of that. In John 10, the gospel writer describes Jesus or talks about Jesus and how he spoke to his followers. And he spoke to him and he describes himself several different ways. About eight different times in scripture, he describes himself as I am. And so in this sermon series that we're going through right now, this message series that we're going through, we've been taking a look at four of these I am statements. Now, Jesus didn't use these conservatively. I mean, he didn't use them liberally. He used them conservatively. He used these I am statements when he wanted to make a dramatic, life-changing statement about who he was, who God is, and our relationship with God. And each of these I am statements points to something about Jesus, but it also points to something about ourselves. It also points to something about humanity. And in in John 10, he says that he is the gate. And when he's talking about a gate, he's also talking about the shepherd, that he's the good shepherd. All the way back in the Old Testament, Ezekiel prophesied that the one who would come, who would be the Messiah, would be the good shepherd. And so Jesus, in John 10, describes himself this way, and he describes how he came to forgive us of our sins like this. John 10, verse 7, we're going to take a look this morning at verses 7 through 9. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate, he says in verse 9. Whoever enters through me will be saved. That's a definitive, crystal clear statement, isn't it? There's no room for any generalities there. They will be saved. He will come in and he will go out and he will find pasture. Have you ever been around sheep before? Admittedly, I'm a city boy, so I wasn't around sheep much growing up. If you know me, you probably know that. You're like, yeah, he doesn't look like the kind of guy who would hang out on a farm, and I'm not, okay? I wasn't. I went to my aunt and uncle's farm in North Florida growing up in my childhood, in my early childhood, and I got to be honest with you, we would fish and we would hunt, and, and I just wasn't into it. I mean, I just wasn't. Like, give me a golf course, you know, give me, like, good food, and I'm fine. But, but being on a farm just wasn't what I thought was fun growing up. But I came to respect farmers getting to know my uncle and getting to know my aunt. But my greatest experience with farmers actually came on a missions trip in 2003. We were at a church, and I was on staff there at North Star Church in Kennesaw, Georgia, and I led a couple guys. Uh, We went over to a place in Romania called Targumures. And it was a place that was in the Transylvania, you know, Dracula, okay, the Transylvania part of Romania. Out in the middle of nowhere was this big city, this thriving city. And there's this church there, Grace Community Church, that's doing an amazing job of preaching the gospel of Jesus there in Romania. But one of the things that they're passionate about is they're passionate about taking the good news of Jesus out into the hill country, out into the villages. And so we spent there in this time in the city in Targumurish preaching the gospel and telling people about Jesus, and it was all great. But then they would take us hundreds and hundreds of miles out into these villages, out in the middle of nowhere. I can't even say the names of the villages because they're so complicated, but literally they would have like 12 to 20 people living in these villages. And it was kind of in the outskirts, in places where the gospel had not really been preached much. And because of the long-standing communism, there wasn't a, a real receptivity to the message of Jesus Christ. 
Well, we would go out there, and the thing that just absolutely surprised me is there were sheep everywhere. But these weren't normal sheep. As I kind of looked on and kind of looked at these sheep, all of these sheep looked like they had met up with a graffiti artist. On the side of the sheep was a large dot that every sheep had a large dot that literally looked like it had been spray painted. And each sheep had a different color. And I came to find out when we asked our friends there in Romania, why in the world do they color these sheep? He said it's because the shepherd has to know which sheep are his. You see, in Romania, there's just common area. There's not like a person who owns this pasture and another person owns this pasture, and there aren't gates around these pastures. So the shepherds spray paint the sheep somehow, some way, to make sure that they know exactly who their sheep are. And so here are these sheep, green ones and red ones and orange ones, all grazing together. And at the end of the day, each shepherd calls his own sheep to himself. Isn't that great? It's a beautiful picture of exactly what Jesus does for us. Now, in the ancient day, it was interesting because shepherds would, they were nomads. And they would move from place to place and they would take their herds with them. And at night, if they were traveling, they would create a barrier. They would create a barrier out of natural things. They'd find some rocks and they'd find some shrubs and maybe they'd go up against a couple trees there in the forest and they would literally create a little sheep pen, a place that during the night, while the danger of the night would come upon them, they would be safe. And the shepherd would literally, I want you to catch this, the shepherd would literally sleep and stand at the point of that gate where there was an opening. And so the shepherd became the gate. Some of your Bible translations there in John 10 might say door. It can be translated both ways. He was the gate and he was the door for our salvation. The Bible says that this is a, a, a parable of sorts, but it's really a little bit more of an allegory. It's a metaphor, a spiritual metaphor. You see, we represent the sheep, don't we? Humanity represents the sheep. Some of you are like, Todd, I know sheep. I don't want to be compared to a sheep. They're the dumbest animals. They're the stinkiest animals. They're the smelliest animals. And yeah, we're compared to them in this particular uh, analogy, in this allegory. We're compared to the sheep. And Jesus is compared to the gate and the pen is the safety of heaven. That place where the shepherd has created for those sheep to go in is the safety of heaven. Now, I want you to take out your notes this morning. We're going to use them to guide us through. Particularly, we're going to take a very close look at verse 9 here in John 10. Now, the key point for us today, this is in your notes, is this. There are many religious philosophies and spiritual paths that we can choose to follow. However, Jesus is the only person that offers us everlasting salvation, security, and spiritual satisfaction. Jesus is the only person that offers us everlasting salvation, security, and spiritual satisfaction. Let's dive right in. Jesus, the first point is this. He opens the door to lasting salvation. He died for me. Jesus opens the door to everlasting salvation. He died for me. You know, with the onslaught of World War I and World War II and the Cold War, we here in America and in the Western world, we built shelters back in that day and age, didn't we? We built, we built fallout shelters in case of a chemical attack. 
Some of you may have lived in an area where you had one in your backyard or your front yard. Uh, my grandparents had one growing up. We, we, we had fallout shelters, and these shelters would provide what we would term safety. Well, I'd like to submit to you today that they didn't just provide safety, these fallout shelters. They literally provided salvation from what might come. There were places deep down in the ground, fortified, airtight. Most people supplied them with a few weeks at least of food. And they would provide salvation in the event of a nuclear or chemical attack. And people back in the days of World War I, World War II, and the Cold War took these fallout shelters very seriously. They were places where you could be saved from possible instant death. If you think for a moment that, wait a minute, a nuclear warfare, some kind of chemical warfare wouldn't cause immediate death. It wouldn't cause death for sure. Well, in Chernobyl, 43 men and women died in Chernobyl. But you know what experts tell us about Chernobyl all the way back in 1986? That that meltdown actually caused 93,000 people to have some kind of certain death causing cancer. You see, those chemical warfares in that day absolutely caused death. And so people built fallout shelters to not protect them from, from harm. They built fallout shelters so that they could be saved. And that's what Christ did with heaven. He gave us, God gave us heaven so that we could be saved. He gave us Jesus, the path to salvation. It's not just a place of protection, not just a place of protection, but it is a place where we can find salvation, and it's only found through the person of Jesus Christ. The sheep would often, in the analogy with a pen, they would often try to find a different way into the pen. But the shepherd would have everything so closely knit together that if a sheep tried to find another way in, it would be very difficult, and they might even harm themselves if they tried to get in another way. And we do the same thing. We look for the answer to our salvation in so many different philosophies, so many different religions. We try to find a way around the gate. But the Bible says that Jesus, this person who died for us, is the way to heaven. You know, it's interesting about this gate and the idea of a door and a fallout shelter. Once that door is open, it's open for anyone who wants to find salvation. It's completely open. It's completely accessible to anyone who wants to say, yes, I want to go in. I want to find my salvation there. But I want you to catch this. Once the door is closed behind, it also provides salvation because it's closed you see, Jesus offers salvation to everyone by saying, I am the door, I am the gate. I am open for anyone who says yes to me. And as soon as you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, that gate, that door closes so that you don't have to go through the torment of hell like the Bible says. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, it is secure, it is eternal, there is no room for anything else. He says, I am the gate, and whoever enters through me will be saved. I think driving at this point are really two applications. And my guess is, is that you're in one of a few places if you're in here this morning. Some of you may have walked in here this morning and you've never heard this news, or maybe you've never heard it quite this way. And your application to this point is, is that uh, you need to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You've never said yes to him. 
Well, at the end of this message, I'll give you the opportunity to say yes so that you can have the security of salvation, so that you can say yes to him and know that you know that you know that you're going to heaven. But I would imagine that there are probably more of you who are in this place. Years ago, you said yes to God. Years ago, you prayed a prayer in a church or at a camp or maybe with a neighbor or maybe with a mom or dad or grandparent. And as the days have gone on, as life has gone on, you've started doubting your salvation. You've started doubting what's going to happen if I die. And so maybe you're in here today and you need that peace. You need that absolute assurance. I want to tell you that the gate to heaven is 100% closed to hell. If you accept him and if you walk into that gate, if you walk into that door, you are saved for sure, eternally, forever. And some of you probably needed to hear that this morning. You've allowed doubt. You've allowed other philosophies. You've allowed other thoughts to enter your mind. And maybe you've gotten to the place where you just doubt. You have those nights that you lay awake going, man, I wonder if this is right. I'm here to tell you this morning it's right. And so at the end of our message today, I'll give you the opportunity to have assurance of your salvation. Take a look at the second point. Jesus not only opens the door to lasting, everlasting salvation, but Jesus opens the door to my safekeeping. He watches over me. The next phrase in verse 9 says that he will come in and he will go out. Part of a shepherd's job in the first century and in the ancient day wasn't just to be at the gate and to watch what's going on inside the pen. In fact, that was safety, wasn't it? There's not much that can happen inside the pen. But one of the shepherd's responsibilities was at night to walk outside of that area and look for danger that might come upon the sheep the next morning. That's part of the shepherd's responsibility. He will come in and he will go out. Um, I've already told you that I'm not much of a farm guy, so you probably would make the jump and conclusion that I'm not much of a camping guy, and you'd be right too. But a few years ago, Cynthia uh, went out of town. She went to a uh, uh, class reunion, and so she was out of town, and I was left with the kids, and it was Friday night, nice cool night in October, and we decided, yes, in Hilton Head Plantation, right there in our backyard, to put a tent outside, and we camped out. And that's the first time that we've camped out as a partial family. Okay, so anyway, that's kind of our deal. But um, I didn't think the kids would get into this, and much to my surprise, <laughs> maybe much to my dismay, uh, at about 10.30, everybody was, they were falling asleep. And here I am in the tent, and even there behind, you know, the nice walls of Hilton Head Plantation, I kept hearing things through the middle of the night. And I got my flashlight out, and the kids were asleep in the tent, and I'd peer out and look around to find out what it was. I don't know if it was raccoons or deer or bear, but I was keeping watch after my kids, and of course me. And, it's, and that's what Jesus does, but I want you to catch this. Please don't miss this. Jesus is active in its safekeeping. It says that he's the gate, but he goes in and he goes out. He's active in watching out for you. He's active in making sure that you're taken care of. And some of you are like, but Todd, I've accepted Christ as my Savior, and my life is a mess. In fact, it's gotten worse since I've asked him to be my Savior. Well, he doesn't promise to meet all of our wants. He never in Scripture promises that on this side of heaven that everything's going to be perfect. Perfect. 
But you know what he does promise? He promises us that he will watch over us. I would imagine that there's at least a few of you who are in here today, and you're facing some kind of danger. You're fearful about something. There's something that's crept into your life that you have a very strong fear about. Here's my challenge on this point. Take one of those things, just one of those things, and I want you to make sure that you ask God to allow Jesus the gate to be the one who watches over that situation. Whatever it is. Maybe it's a relational situation. Maybe you have gotten into a relationship that is causing you fear. Maybe you're a single mom and your kids are causing you fear. Maybe you're in a situation where life change is causing you fear. Maybe you feel like you're in danger from some, someone else or something else. Ask God to watch over you in that particular situation. Jesus provides lasting salvation. He provides safekeeping. And lastly, Jesus opens the door to spiritual satisfaction. He fulfills my spiritual need. This is my favorite part. It says that he goes in and he goes out, but then he says he will find pasture. Okay, and I want you to picture ancient Middle Eastern times. Does green, lush, grassy pasture come to your mind? No. It was deserty. It was mountainous. It, was, it had a very dry area. Jesus will go out and he will find pasture for those of you who allow him to. This doesn't meet, mean that he's going to meet all of our wants, but he does promise to take care of our physical needs. You know, we often look at needs and wants from the standpoint of physical things to make us feel better about life. That's not at all what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about meeting your spiritual needs He's talking about proving that he is the one that can watch over and guide you into spiritual satisfaction. I love that word, pasture. You see, not only does Jesus go in and out of the pen looking for what is harmful, but he is looking for what will provide us, don't miss this, spiritual nourishment. He provides spiritual nourishment. He's the gate. He's the shepherd. And he leads his sheep to the pasture where they can eat of nourishment. He leads them to water where they can drink the nourishing water. And he does it with us. But there's a huge difference between what we think we need and what we actually need, isn't there? Jesus says that he will provide for our spiritual needs. When we have a personal crisis, we think we need the counsel of secular experts, but the Bible says that we should choose wise, godly counsel. When we find ourselves deep in sin, we try to argue with it. We try to blame others. We try to make ourselves out to be the victim when, in fact, Jesus says that I will offer complete forgiveness if you'll just repent and you'll confess of your sins. When we find ourselves turning a new chapter in life and we need to find a new philosophy or a new way, we check out the latest Oprah book. And we find it from there. And the Bible says that we can look to him to find our way. That he will guide your path. Some of you may be in here and you are working two or three jobs and you're burning the candle at both ends and you are tired. You know what Jesus says? He says, look to me and I will give you rest. He will meet 
our spiritual needs. But you know what that means? It means that you have to be willing to accept what he provides. It means that you have to be willing to partake of what he provides. And it also means that you need to stay close to him. Sheep always stay close to the shepherd. They always look for nourishment and safety from the shepherd. And when we wander from God, when we wander in our relationship with Jesus, we can't easily discern what is nourishing. We can't easily understand what he is providing. My challenge to you on this point is if you're here today and you've drifted like we all have, get back to center with him. Begin spending time daily with your shepherd, the one who provides safety, the one who provides spiritual satisfaction. We sang about it this morning. Jesus is called the King of Kings. He's called the Lord of Lords. The Bible says that there's coming a day when he is going to be king over all. But today is Palm Sunday. And Jesus came to this earth as a meek, mild baby. He walked into Jerusalem on a donkey. Do you know what that means? You see, back in the ancient day when a rabbi or when a teacher or when a ruler or a prince or a king, when they rode into a city or a geographic location on a horse, you know what it meant? It was wartime. They were there to take over. Jesus chose to ride in on a donkey, and in doing so, he expressed that he was there to bring peace. Yeah, he's going to be the king of kings. Yes, he's going to be the lord of lords. And one day, he will rule over everything. But you know what? If we don't fight him, if we don't try to reject him, He comes to us offering peace. And that's what we ought to do with Jesus. That day when he walked in on that Sunday, the people of Jerusalem knew that he was coming in peace. They saw him on the donkey. They may have expected him to ride a horse. But they took their robes and they laid it down on the ground for that donkey to ride on. And those who didn't have robes, they would take palm branches and they laid them down. That's where we get Palm Sunday from. And they did so because they were accepting Jesus as royalty. He came meek and mild, but he came to bring peace. It was a symbol of honor, a symbol of we are making him the king of kings. And that's what we need to do with our lives. We need to know that he comes to bring peace, but we need to accept him as our king, don't we? We need to accept him as our Lord. I'm going to ask you to Bow your heads and close your eyes. A few minutes ago, I asked if any of you needed to accept Jesus as your Savior for the very first time. So I'm going to ask you to just silently during this time together pray a very simple prayer. If you've never accepted the gate, if you've never accepted the eternal salvation, the everlasting salvation that Jesus offers, I'm going to invite you to pray a simple prayer. Pray this the best you know how, just silently in your heart to God. It's a prayer that goes something like this. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for being the gate to heaven. Today, I confess of my sins, and I ask you, Jesus, to be my Savior. Help me to turn from my old way of living and to live and accept you as my King. Now, if you prayed that prayer just in the quietness of this room with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm just going to ask you to look up at me. I just want to pray for you. I'm not going to point you out. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else this morning that prayed that prayer? 
for the first time thing. Anyone else this morning? Read that prayer. And if you're in here today and you're like, Todd, I did that a long time ago. But boy, I've had my doubts. I lay awake at night and I wonder. And something that was said, something that was sung, something that was read today just absolutely brought me assurance. I'm just going to ask you to pray this prayer along with me, silently in your heart, the best way you know how. Jesus, I know that you died for my sins. I accepted you a long time ago as my Savior. And today I confess of having doubts as to whether or not you provide salvation. Today, I want to settle that for sure with you. Help me, God, to know that I know that I know that I'm saved. And help me to never doubt that truth again. If you prayed that prayer just in the quietness of the room, I'm going to ask you to look up at me. I would imagine there are a few. Amen. Anyone else this morning? Anyone else? Amen. Anyone else? Father God, I thank you for these spiritual decisions that were made today. God, I thank you for those who accepted you as their Savior. It was the first time they've ever come to the conclusion that you are the Savior. You are the gate to heaven, and they can find everlasting salvation. God, I thank you for those decisions that were made. The Bible says the angels in heaven are rejoicing because of those in this room who made that decision today. And I pray for those who came in here today, and they've been doubting, oh, it's been a struggle and God, I thank you for those who made that final commitment to say, you know what, I prayed it long ago, I've been saved since then. Help them to never doubt that again. Father God, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, God, that you were the gate to heaven. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.